This episode contains descriptions of infant deaths and discussions of infant mortality and stillbirth. It might not be suitable for everyone. Located on the south coast of Cornwall between the River Fal and the sea, the town of Falmouth has an enviable climate, if you don't mind the occasional Cornish mist. It is situated at the entrance of the world's third deepest natural harbour, which Falmouth shares with the Carrick Roads. In 1540, well before there was ever a town in Falmouth, Henry VIII built both Pendennis and St. Mouse Castle at each side of the River Fal to defend this open access to the kingdom. This strategic position allowed Falmouth to become one of the most important ports in the United Kingdom. A few centuries later, the small coast town would also become a resting place for many people. At the turn of the 20th century, Falmouth was established as a spa resort town. An ad on the Falmouth packet announces the Alexandra Nursing Home in Gillingdon, Falmouth as a home open at any time for medical, surgical and maternity patients. It boasts trained nurses for any cases, a resident masseuse, chiropody and a fully equipped operating theatre. But what's more, if you went to the Alexandra Nursing Home, you could benefit from the dowsing radiant heat and light treatments, from high frequency and vibratory massages, all offered under medical advice. If you needed more, there was always the x-ray machine. The Alexandra Nursing Home was one of the many places in Falmouth which offered this kind of treatments. In this day and age, you can also access the spa benefits in the town, although you might need to pop by Trudor for the x-ray. In this episode, we look at the grave of Mary Monk, a patient of the Alexandra Nursing Home and a remarkable woman who would go on to make history. We also continue to explore the history of Falmouth Cemetery. If you haven't listened to episode one, this is a good time to go and have a listen. I am Sherezai Garcia-Rangel, and this is On the Hill. Hidden in a cluster of graves, just in front of an unruly mess of bushes, a great dapple stone tapers upwards, the inscription only visible if you crouch right in front of it. In ever-loving memory of my dear sister Mary Monk, born at Hoddesdon, Hertfordshire, January 15, 1874, died January 16, 1917. For many years she devoted her life to the sick and the suffering. The grave goes on to a verse. Thou art our pattern and our guide until the end of time, O Lord. How perfect is thy will. What brought this woman from Hertfordshire to Falmouth, you may wonder? And how exactly did she devote her life to the sick and the suffering? Mary's brief 39 years on this earth coincided with an overhaul of the UK health system, which would last decades. We began to see this with the introduction of the Public Health Act in 1848 on episode one. On her life, Mary not only saw a great deal of change, but implemented it and most possibly instigated much of it. Here's her obituary in the Falmouth packet on the 9th of January, 1917. Portsmouth officials' death at Falmouth. Much regret is felt at Portsmouth, and in the nursing world generally, by the announcement of the death of Miss Mary Monk at the Alexandra Nursing Home, Falmouth, on Saturday last, after a short illness. Miss Monk had been ailing for some time, but did not give up work until a month since, when she came to Falmouth with the hope of getting well. She had been, for twelve years, Inspector of Midwives at Portsmouth. 
The first lady inspector appointed there, Miss Monk was exceedingly successful in the performance of the important work entrusted to her. She was very popular with the mothers and midwives who were under her. The deceased possessed a charming personality, which soon won the confidence and love of those amongst whom she carried on her duty, also of the staff of the home at which she passed away, and at the time when the prompt notification of births became compulsory, her experience and advice in the care of mothers and infants was no doubt the means of largely reducing infantile mortality in the town. Just from reading turn-of-the-century literature, most of us are aware of death's heavy presence during that particular time. That was an era of precarious working conditions, malnutrition, life-threatening diseases that have thankfully all but been eradicated. This made encounters with death and the dying more frequent. Life, we can imagine, was considered fleeting and precious, and making peace with death was an essential part of it. Miss Monk was trained at Middlesex Hospital London and held the Sanitary Inspector's Certificate and the Certificate of the Central Midwives Board. From the first, Miss Monk worked with the staff with the utmost harmony, and her death is much lamented. The funeral took place at the cemetery on Tuesday, the Reverend HMS Collier officiating. The chief mourners were Mr. W. Monk, brother, Mrs. H. Beale, sister, Mr. E. Beale, nephew, Private H. Beale, brother-in-law, Miss F. Preston, representative of the Midwives Association, Portsmouth, Miss S. Hunt, Portsmouth, Miss A. H. Being a mother during this period would have been a particularly challenging role, physically and emotionally. Rather than pregnancy being an exciting time for parents of this era, many poorer families were not in a situation to feed another mouth. The first indication that a woman was pregnant, usually called a quickening or a movement of the fetus around four months, often provoked feelings of dread. As recorded by Ellen Ross in her book Love and Toil, Motherhood in Outcast London, 1870-1918, to women were frequently blamed by their husbands for being in the family way. So those first signs of being with child signal a period of great stress and loneliness for the mother. This period often began by taking on extra work. One account from Ross's Love and Toil details a woman sorting rags for extra money pushing heavy sacks until late into her pregnancy, an example of extreme manual labor which could have led to a preterm birth and a fragile, premature baby. As the family grew, mothers inevitably reduced food portions until they were eating too little to sustain more healthy pregnancies and their own mental well-being. If a parent were to be made unemployed or the mother were to die in childbirth, often the family was left with no choice but to put the child into care, or, in the most extreme of cases, commit infanticide. We have more to share about the UK's attempts to improve the life of its citizens, and about the situation of mothers and infants at this time. But before we do, let's learn how Falmouth dealt with infant death in the middle of the 19th century. Looking through the inquest reports at Falmouth around this time, news of newborns left to die is unnervingly frequent, one of which reads, A newborn baby drowned, the cord still attached. Another, just ten years later, newborn baby abandoned in a cellar, died of exposure. Could these have been fatal accidents? Or parents acting out of desperation? Perhaps we will never know. Robert Rawlinson's report of 1854 on the living conditions of the inhabitants of Falmouth also reflects the precarious situation we have been discussing. Robert Rawlinson, Esquire, Superintendent Inspector, 1854. 
It appears that during the last seven years, 364 bodies of infants have been buried, without any tangible record being kept. This neglect takes place throughout the whole kingdom, and evidence has been given showing that such neglect, in many instances, covers infanticide and countenances an escape of crime. A complete registration ought to be made compulsory. After the recommendations collated by Rawlinson's report, the burial board of Falmouth went quickly into action. They began to solicit an expansion of the cemetery on Hanman's Hill, and through this proceeding, which we will continue to study across this season, a Falmouth Burial Ground Regulations booklet was produced and printed in 1856. This document regulated the use of the Falmouth Cemetery, and it makes a special case for stillborn children. A portion of the burial ground shall be set apart for the internment of stillborn children, whose graves shall extend to the depth of four feet at the least from the ordinary level of the ground, and when more than one body is intended to be buried in a grave, the grave shall be dug to such a depth beyond four feet as will admit a layer of earth eighteen inches in thickness at the least between each coffin interred therein. Falmouth Burial Ground Regulations, published by the Order of the Board John J. Skinner, Clerk and Registrar, Falmouth, 2nd of December, 1856. As we have seen in Episode 1, the expansion of a cemetery has come from a number of necessities of the living. Here we find a heartbreaking but necessary one. We will now go back to learn more about Mary Monk and the UK's efforts for improvement. But before we do, I want to hold a little bit of silence to all of those affected by the topics we are covering on this podcast. We hope this historical and creative story is helping to illuminate some of these dark stories. Although it started earlier, the big cleanup of the UK really got underway between 1880 and 1910. With a 19th century sanitary reform, came an increased awareness of bacteriology and infectious diseases, leading to the opening of isolation centers, an emphasis on notification of breakouts, and more education surrounding sanitation. Perceptions of poor families of the time were much like they are now. Oliver Twist liked depictions of slums and squalor. A link had been identified between a sanitary code of behavior in household and disease, and by extension, child mortality. Due to limited education surrounding sex, especially in the working classes, families were big and a woman would become pregnant many times over the course of her life. Family size was directly proportionate to class, and infant death rates, in general, were commensurate with income the state decided to actively intervene with the conditions of the working classes. Sex education, you might be thinking, or even free contraception? Far from it. The infant welfare movement came into play during the years leading up to World War I as part of a surge of interest in making the population bigger and stronger. Working class mothers, especially from London, became the focus of this campaign. In her investigation into the life of the Midwives Institute founding member, Rosalind Paget, June Hannam states that the responsibilities of middle-class women were to the welfare of poorer members of the community, in particular women and children. This gained renewed importance after 1900, when the defeats of the Boer War focused attention on the high rates of infant mortality and poor child health, which appeared to threaten Britain's standing as a leading imperial and economic power. In the ensuing debates over this, mothers came to be seen as holding the key to future natural greatness. End quote. Authorities strove to make the health system the main port of call for new and expecting mothers. Crucially, part of this campaign was the creation of the 1902 Midwife Act. Prior to this, midwifery in the late 19th century had varied from area to area without a standard to adhere to. Birthing attendants were often older women unmarried or widowed, looking to make some extra money through nursing. 
from 1902 onwards, all midwives were required to attend a training program of three months, which was increased to six months in 1916, and were obliged to pass over any unusual or difficult birth to a physician. By 1905, only certified women could call themselves a midwife and be paid for their services. This profession, of which teaching the art of mothercraft was a big part, often meant that women accustomed to a certain standard of living exerted unreasonable demands over their working-class mothers. For the mothers, simple actions such as cleaning and sterilizing with hot water incurred both time and expense. Much research into this field depicts that this is an era of social control over working-class life. From 1904 onwards, milk depots and mother and babies clinics sprang up all over the country. One such local example is the Infants Milk Club and Lecture School for Mothers, opened in Falmouth in 1909, where mothers would attend classes centered around cleanliness and hygiene. Ross says of the infant welfare movement that, and I quote, activists campaigned for trained childbirth attendance, systems of advice on infant feeding and infant care, and better access to medical care for mothers and babies, all with the aim of lowering national infant mortality statistics. But what the women actually seemed to need was not always medicine, but food for themselves and their babies. The information they craved for was about birth control or abortion, rather than bottle feeding. End quote. The introduction of female sanitary inspectors came about 1890. In 1893, in London, there were... 115 sanitary inspectors. All were men. Mary Monk was the first female sanitary inspector and health visitor to be appointed in Portsmouth. Her Hampshire Gazette obituary reads that she was elected out of a large number of applicants in March 1903 in connection with the administration of the Midwives Act. End quote. It also goes on to say that it is largely due to her ability and indefatigable energy that the applications of this act has proved so beneficial in the town and her services were unselfishly given and eminently successful in decreasing infant mortality locally. Although we see a change here with regards to the importance of women in healthcare, highlighted by the wonderful story of Mary Monk, we wonder whether this was to the detriment of working-class mothers. How do we measure the difference between oppression and social reform? We will now hear Amy Lilwell's creative response to the life of Mary Monk, read by Amy herself. Fingernails like shell husks on the ends of their grey blue tips. Mary rests the tips on her own finger, lifts them, jigs them, returns them to the folds of the blanket. The mother holds her folded hands to her mouth, walks to the doorway and bows before it. Mary stands and watches the veined hollow between the tiny nipples, then bends to the cot. She cups her hand to his chin and pushes the mouth shut. The eyes loll under purple eyelids. Beneath the doorway at the other end of the room, shoulders shake. Mary nods to the attendant, asks her to wrap him. Cause of death, born too early, his mother working for her mistress up until the day she gave birth, hiding her aproned mound under petticoats and behind tea trays whilst she built fires in the frozen morning hearths and fetched vegetables from the kitchen garden, washed and folded linen, scrubbed floors, carried buckets of coal. In the corner I crouch up against the ceiling, my scaled legs bent into angles, the claw above my heel twitching. The babe hangs, hair dandelioned, arms loose, his body tucked into my deep inside pocket. I slide through the wall to the room next door. A man rocks in a chair, a child's crying head in his lap. The wrinkles in her dress release pops of clean. That smock has been pressed, scrubbed by the mother, not wanting her nurse to think her children are dirty. My nostrils flare, my pockets are full. 
and the child smelt better when I planted my seed last week. I passed through the ceiling and up, up. There's one waiting for me at home. Oh yes, I've had my fill over these last few months with that delicious foreign flu. She sits next to her body and stares up at her mother. Go away, go away, I say. Why don't you go back to your new bedroom? She ignores me, continues the careful perusal of her little fingers, her tiny lace-up shoes. They are so much easier when they are younger. Mary rests her hands on a woman's shoulders. It's perhaps time now, Eliza, she says. The woman is smiling. She smiles for a while and then, just a few more minutes. Mary's eyes wander over Eliza's curved legs. Tell me, Eliza, what do you eat every day? Eliza shudders, tilts her head. Every day, she says. Mary walks beyond the bedstead to the kitchen corner of Eliza's room. There is a jar of dripping and some bread. Mary picks up the bread and knocks it against the tabletop. It's last week's, says Eliza, walking up behind Mary. Mary turns, looks at the cradled head, one little leg hanging over Eliza's wrist, toes grey and smooth as boot buttons. Cause of death, malnutrition. A diet of bread and tea leads to all kinds of nasties. If only she'd had a little bit more. Her ribs stick out further than her distended belly. I take the babe and tell it about all the nice things to eat upstairs. I'll be back before you know it, I say to Mary, as she spoons some oily suspension into the woman's mouth. She knows them all, the pregnant women. I follow her as she goes about them, checking their ripe bellies when their time nears. There are also the fine ladies who give birth in their swathes of lace-trimmed linen, maids swishing about them. This lady has had five daughters now. The only one left runs into the room to be shooed out again. The lady whimpers and turns her head to one side, then the other. She asks for a sip of morphine and the cloth doused with chloroform. Mary takes her hand, holds it to her chest and says, No. The maid scowls and leaves, a tray of water in her arms. The lady groans. You'll manage without it, Mary says. She drops the hand and calls after the maid for cloths to dampen and dab across the lady's brow. I can't do this again. Mary breathes in, nods. The maid lays the cloths out on the table, rolls large eyes up to Mary, then rolls them back again. This is a leafy part of town. The sky is higher here, grander and dusted in twinkles. We have crossed over to here together, through the tunnelled smog that warped about her form as she strode ahead of me. Not mine, you will note. No, there's none of that in this part of town. There is room for light in the sky, for trees in the streets, for windows on the houses and steps up to the doors. I know which door will be ours, but Mary stops, turns about, squeezes her lips together. I pull my face around to hers and we glint our eyes at each other for a while. She wipes her cheeks and moves onwards towards the crown-like silhouette of a maid's hat beyond the glass of a front door. We have been here before. I had hoped as soon as I saw the street, but sometimes it's good for the soul to try other different fruits. Nonetheless, I am glad. We go into the house. I got here as soon as I could, says Mary, unpinning her hat. This is a lie. We had to send the messenger away, tell them we'd follow on. We then sat for a moment and stared at each other, she crying, me picking at the scales on my knuckles, waiting. Follow me, miss. The maid runs up the stairs, skirts bunched in her hands. Mary follows. I decide to peep around an open door. One end of a pipe is being held up by fingertips. I pass through the door and flinch. The man's eyes widen upon my arrival. I cower back, but his eyes stay large, fixed on a coal bucket that has been left by the leg of an armchair. Pretty coal bucket it is, deadened grey, abandoned. I rise to my full height and decide to make the chandelier flicker. 
the man removes his pipe from his mouth and sits forward in his chair. I do it again and he stands. The smells gathered underneath him, released. I swoop to catch them, pressing my nose to his neck, then step back slowly, my eyes devouring his cheeks, his nose, his own eyes. They are not normal human smells. A howl drops from above and I pass through the ceiling, my head level with the hearthrug and the clammy tips of a woman's hand reaching towards it. Mary lifts the sheet at the end of the bed, steals herself, walks back to the forehead. What is it, miss? Never you mind. The lady turns her face. What is it, Mary? Do you feel like you need to push, madam? No, says the lady, then turns her head away to moan. I dip my head back down below. He is now on his knees, praying, but not to our Lord. I recoil when I hear the words hide inside the fireplace and I shake it, knocking down a travel clock and a pile of three books. He starts, puts his hand to his chest. Yes, you can stop your pleas to that vile entity, I think. There is only one angel of death around here. When I go back up, the babe is emerging, crying before it's fully out. It stops to fill its lungs, then cries again. I lick my little finger and run it over my left brow. There was really no other way. I couldn't let this poor soul descend that staircase. Lucky you are, little one. Mary is standing behind a woman whose hands grip the edges of a countertop. Perhaps you'd move her upstairs, says a man with a waistcoat and glasses, before hurrying off. Mary holds the woman's hips, guides her to the staircase. It's not my time yet, says the woman. Ladies, back to your work, calls the man with the glasses. I am waiting, legs through the banisters, ankles crossed, feet swinging over the rolling and the whirring and the smoking. This one is going to take a while. It's upside down. I swoop up beside them. The woman is now lying on a worktop of some sort. She is pale with smeary eyes. I bend closer, test her with my tongue. Oh, it looks like she might be draining. Pity I don't deal with the adults. A nice chance to see one of my colleagues again. He flickers into the room. We smile at each other and he vanishes. Mary uncovers the belly, places her hand on it. Is this your first? The woman puffs through pursed lips, shakes her head. First to term, they usually drop much earlier. She breathes. She's upside down. I feel my pointed teeth smile onto my mouth. She's what, miss? She's in the wrong position. Mary walks to the woman's face, bends over it. I should send for a physician, she says. Perhaps she'll cry, I think. Perhaps she'll die. It's not my time, miss. Mary walks back to the belly. I'm going to turn her, she says. I uncross my legs and sit upright. We haven't done this before. But I watch as she presses on the belly. The woman yowls and moans. The bump swirls inside her under Mary's hands. I move to the head. Early, you say. I disappear inside it and look backwards for that night where she was dancing and then fallen in the woods behind her father's cottage with the boy who held her by the hair. Yes, it was but seven months ago. This babe will be small. Its lungs will be mush. Its skull will be too squidgy. I sit back, fold my arms, stare at her eyes. You can't do it, Mary. We leave the factory. The girl upstairs still with her baby, its arms curling, tongue sitting wetly on its lips. She's named it Mary. It happens sometimes against all odds. I push my hands to the ends of my coat pockets and kick at the cobbles as we walk home. This creative piece was written by Amy Lilwall. Amy Newell now shares some of her reflections after writing about Mary Monk. A great deal can be said about the tenacity of a woman who was accepted at the top of a male-dominated profession. I am continuing my inquiries into Mary Monk. 
but from the little information I have gathered, including a full obituary article in the Hampshire Gazette and another in the Falmouth Packet, I have discovered that she was a much-loved and valued member of the community. Getting closer to a figure from the past makes the personal far more touching than the general. Having been helpfully guided by Jennifer at the Portsmouth History Centre, I found myself pondering over the penultimate line of her recent email. In 1911, she is recorded as a sanitary inspector living alone at 170 Laburnum Grove. Of course, I looked up the house, a respectable terraced house on the leafy avenue, but the words, living alone, hold a certain poignance in their simplicity. I wonder what she did when she walked through her front door at night. I wonder if she was glad to be alone. I wonder how many women she saw trapped in a circle of suffering and reproduction. I wonder what she thought about a system where the poor were forced to become poorer. I wonder if in not becoming a mother herself, her intention was to be a real mother of mothers. I had the opportunity to sit with Amy and ask her questions about her response to the life of Mary Monk. Amy, thank you for writing a story for this project and for talking to me about it. Thank you for having me. This is such a moving and harrowing tale where you have compacted a lot of research mm -hmm. to tell us a little bit about the life of Mary Monk. I'm curious about the perspective you chose because it's quite unique. We have this mm -hmm. angel. To me, it was like an angel child figure mm -hmm. following her mm. about her work. Can you tell us about that choice? Yeah, well, I think we are um, addressing a very serious subject here and it's not one that I'm too comfortable with looking at. Yeah. Um, having done some research, especially playing with primary sources um, at the poly where the archives are currently, yes. looking through newspapers, looking through certain documents, um, what I noticed was that... Um, the way that information was relayed at that time meant that, that you'd have very, very serious subjects juxtaposed with very, very light subjects. Mm -hmm. So you might have um, an infant found death, found dead in the sea um, next to uh, a little article about parlour games. Right. Um, and it kind of highlighted for me the way that um, in that era, everyone had to, had to make their peace with death and it was mm. part and parcel of life. Um, and so um, in order to be able to tell that story, um, which I think from a, an invisible narrator or which could be presumed to be me um, mm. uh, I wasn't comfortable with that so I chose this light-hearted character yes. to be that lens mm. um, in the same way as this information I feel was, was conveyed yeah. um, at the time He brings a certain humour um, yeah. to it um, yes. but it, that is well balanced with, with all the sad things that are happening yeah. and the, it makes it a little more friendly in, in the sense of we can understand that a bit more because he's looking at it yeah, um, and knocking the books and, and kind of paying attention to the coal bucket and those things where, okay, we have a little bit of a break mm -hmm. to know that we are in the presence of that, but in a kind of approachable way. Mm -hmm. Is that yeah. right? Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, it, it allows us to, to get a bit closer to this subject, I suppose, mm. and to think, oh, actually, it's okay. You yeah. can hide behind this narrator. We can hide, yeah. yeah. Mm. Um, there is something quite telling about she goes, she, she sees a lot of death, she sees a lot of illness, mm -hmm. um, but she also sees a lot of difference mm. between the classes and how mm. the health would be presented in each mm -hmm. um, you focused on how the landscape mm. of where the, this tr street is or the what they're wearing um, signifies that difference um, was why was that important to look into um, it was important to me to look at the class differences I think because um, a midwife at that time would have looked after all women mm. uh, specifically there was a focus on, on women of the working classes at that time because it was it was generally felt by the government wrongly or rightly that they needed to be taught how to mm. how to raise children so that they would right. be healthy 
Um, so I thought that it was important to include that in there. But then, uh, obviously, um, women from different classes were giving birth as well. And, yeah. and including the woman in the lace um, mm. upstairs in her nice, respectable house, it offers that juxtaposition between yeah. between the, the, the two. And also, kind of, death was a great equaliser. Yeah, that's so true. Yeah, mm. death was a great equaliser. Mm-hmm. So, sadly. Um, yes. I noticed the appearance of one of the most dreaded diseases at the time, which was uh, the Spanish flu. Yes. Um, why did you bring that one into it? It's, the, it's right around the time when when this was taking over. And yeah. in episode one, we had cholera at yeah. the, and dysentery at the center. Now we have Spanish flu. Uh-huh, yes. Mm. I think there again, because I was able to create a distance between um, the reader and what that flu actually was, the narrator says that delicious foreign flu. <laughs> yeah. So uh, it's not explicit. Well, I mean, mm. you've guessed what it is, but it, it's not really explicit. And, yeah. and uh, I, I, that's what I was trying to go for. Mm. Um, I guess what it is, because I'm Spanish oh, as yes. well. Uh-huh. Um, mm-hmm. Spanish, I'm Venezuelan and... Mm-hmm. I just always found it interesting that that's what it's called. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. That's yeah. why I was, no. I was like, oh, there it is. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's and it's 1917, uh, mm-hmm. where is, that's the biggest year, I think, mm-hmm. for Spanish influenza. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um, this is a world of women. Yes. It's a very different story from many of the ones that we see from the cemetery where it's the men who are the prominent yeah. ones um, who have the bigger graves, who are named first. Mm-hmm. We also see um, recorded in the graves, daughter of or beloved wife of. Yeah. But this is not that world. This is a world where Mary's at the center, where where what we're looking at is the experience of women. Uh-huh. And, and one of the main ones being that of motherhood and pregnancy. Mm. Um, what do you think that that's one of the reasons that you were drawn to that story or what brought you to that topic specifically um what brought me to that topic i suppose is the inscription on the grave that reads devoted her life to the sick and the suffering obviously it's going to raise questions and when you scratch the surface a little further you realize that 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 women of the time, regardless of their class, they didn't have a great deal of time to devote their life to anything except their families and their children. That's right. Um, and this is why the the email from um, the History Centre at Portsmouth was so important, I think, when it said that she lived alone. Mm-hmm. For me, that was a choice. That was a choice to, um, to forfeit or forego all of the responsibilities required of, of women at that time yes um, to 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 help people and in doing so becoming even more of a, a mother and mm-hmm. a, a kind of a wider a, mother yeah, yeah a wider mother absolutely mm. so I do wonder about that um, she I mean she was in a world where she was the first female sanitary inspector in Portsmouth and and mm. I think it was because she was alone that she was able to rise to that position in such a male-dominated era. Um, so it, it's funny because the inscription on the grave itself is very difficult to read. You could almost miss it. But when you understand what it says and when you scratch the surface a little further, you, you just reveal this person who was an absolute hero of her mm-hmm. time. And, and I think that her story just had to be told, really. Yeah. In, in, in a way, even though, of mm. course, a century plus mm-hmm. has passed since she passed. Yes. Very contemporary, she sounds to me. Someone who focused on, on women's health, mm-hmm. who who contributed very strongly yeah. um, to the benefits that we see now um, through reduction of infant mortality. Yes, um, I think so. There is another side to this, um, because at the time when there was this health reform... Um, there's there's a lot of research around the fact that it, it, this advice wasn't welcomed by well, mm. working class mother wo- mothers. What they needed was information about um, abortion or contraception yeah. or you know family planning in general. And actually, they were being told by women of a different class mm-hmm. who were maybe slightly out of touch with their realities that um, they had to live in a certain way yeah. and certain constraints were imposed upon them um 
so there is that side of it as well i did scour the articles for any line um that might the articles from the newspapers for mm. any line that might have suggested that she was popular among her patients as well uh. as fellow midwives and the the people that worked for her um and <laughs> i was really pleased to see that there there is a line there <laughs> saying popular with mothers and Good. and yeah. um her colleagues alike obviously that was a newspaper article so you don't know the reality behind mm. that um, but everything points toward the, towards the fact that she was a very kind and generous person. Mm. So um, I imagine that uh, she was a pioneer in in more than in one, more than one way. way yeah, definitely, mm. absolutely. Mm. Um, you talk about an oily suspension in episode one. We saw another kind of oily suspension. There's oh. this physicality about the records of this time where they describe very specifically and very bluntly um, the things that were happening. It seems like right now we live a sli slightly away from mm. things that are um, less than clean, mm -hmm. <laughs> so to speak. Um, why did you bring that one in? Why is it that physical? Mm -hmm. That's interesting, actually, that you picked <laughs> up on that detail. I mean... Uh, in in, a, in contemporary writing, how often do we get to use the word suspension? <laughs> it, it kind of seems to suit the tone of that era that I was going for. Yes. Um, <clears throat> oily. Hmm, interesting. And, and <laughs> it's right that you picked up on that as well, because this is not a pretty landscape that I'm yes. portraying. And so that kind of that 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 greasiness, that, yeah. that dirt is is present in in all of the words mm -hmm. i guess that i use so yes it is perhaps not so intentional as you'd like to think <laughs> maybe but it just suited the the tone that i was going i would for. imagine that we've been thinking about this mm -hmm. and reading these things because mm -hmm. you've been helping me with this project and going to the mm -hmm. uh, archives together and sharing um funny little quotes that we find um but it, it has made me reflect on how how much of a distance we put from mm. things that are um, relate to the human bodies is all a bit more. And even though we're very interested contemporarily in how it works, we know how it works more perhaps than they did then. Mm -hmm. um, the less beautiful side of it, we don't really pay attention to. And that has to do with death as well. We, mm. we know that with the Falmer Cemetery, there was a solution of putting the cemetery away, perhaps as the first time mm. where death starts to move away from your day-to-day -day life, where you would see the bones in the churchyard as you walk to work. Yeah. Mm. 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 Um, there's a beautiful image where she, Mary's walking down the street and you have the little angel slash death mm -hmm. following mm. her. How important was to to stay so close to Mary then we see her affected by having to go attend to a patient. She seems to take a moment. She bites herself a moment by saying, I'll follow. Um, and yet there's there's a intimacy in that distance. It's not just a distance. There's there's a closeness to it because this figure watches her and tells us that she's lied, but not in an incriminating way. Mm -hmm. Can you talk to us about that distance? Um, mm. Well, I guess the idea that the angel would follow her so closely is that obviously, you know, she's providing him with some, with, with what he needs. <laughs> yeah. So he, he sticks to her rather religiously. Um, I think because I didn't dare to go into Mary's head as a narrator myself to find it to kind of discover what she was thinking um i needed that angel to get as close to her as he possibly could and in doing so showing that he's not really bad mm. um that he, he kind of waits for her while she's yeah you know while she's taking a moment before she goes on to the lady's house um that actually he, he's just doing his job mm. and he chooses to be with her and there's a kind of fondness yes. for her. So it was important to me to show him as not being um, evil. evil. <laughs> um, I don't know why she's upset, to be honest with you, but I just thought that she must have seen so much mm. that I wanted to allow her that moment to be a bit sad about the things that she sees. Yeah. 
Um, and in doing so, I think that that makes the character of her that I've I've built mm-hmm. quite likable and Indeed, relatable. Does, yeah. Um, that brings me to a little change that happens at the end, where it seems like she's been thinking about a way to change things mm. and the opportunity shows up and there's a little bit of hesitation but then she goes for it and mm. she's she turns the baby and we go from what has been sad mm. and maybe perhaps hinted at lots of death to there is hope mm. there is a difference and the difference is her action um in managing to to move on ahead mm-hmm. with her profession, really. It's, it's a professional choice. Um, why was it, I believe, when I was reading the story, that, that that ending elevated the story that already was working amazingly, but why was it important to uplift us at the end of this really harrowing and sad tale? Um, I think mostly because it's a difficult subject to work with. Mm. And um, how... I think the intention behind the articles that were written about her, the newspaper articles, was to show how she had a positive effect on infant mortality. Mm. So I wanted to show her succeeding in her work. Yeah. The turning of the baby, um, that's also quite a, a pivotal <laughs> moment mm. because um, so the 1902 Midwives Act detailed that um, a midwife had to be certified. Mm-hmm. Um, and if they were attending a birth where it was obvious that there were any problems, they were obliged to call a physician. Ah, so right. a physician would usually be a male doctor mm-hmm. who would come along. From my research, um, it's been suggested that male doctors would use forceps mm-hmm. a lot yep. um, and chloroform. Mm-hmm. And the chloroform was generally needed because the forceps were so painful. Yeah. Okay. Now, um, uh, this is, I don't know how common this was, but mm. I mean, I've read it a couple of times. So I wanted to show that as a moment where she decided to make that decision that she would save the woman from that, mm-hmm. that she knew that she could do this procedure herself. Mm-hmm. So uh, it might seem quite superficial reading that, like just mm. a superficial gesture, but actually it's, it's quite It's quite loaded. transformative, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And we had that hint before mm-hmm. about a patient not taking the chloroform, like you yes. don't need it, it's yeah. okay. Mm. She seems to be growing in confidence about her knowledge of what's happening and, mm. and about her ability to deliver it, which yeah. I think... Maybe perhaps another character wouldn't have. Yes. She goes ahead and that's why she has such an influence and yeah. and turns the baby, t- literally turning. Literally um, turning point. Yeah. <laughs> the history around. <laughs> uh-huh. um, there's so much that we are learning about, about the 19th century, the beginning of um, the 20th century, through looking at very specific lives mm-hmm. that we kind of randomly encounter. Mm. Um, or are suggested to us um, when we visit the cemetery. I wonder what have you learned in your research about about yourself as a woman, about yourself as a writer, um, in your research of the Victorian Edwardian figures and of Mary herself. Cricket. <laughs> <laughs> Is that too academic a question? <laughs> what have I learned? About Victorian Edwardian figures. What about that time? Things were different at that time, but oh. they seem to be ramping up. Yeah. Yeah, I guess um, I, what I really learned was it was a moment of social reform mm. um, that I hadn't really thought about beforehand, um, <clears throat> which you can't really think about beforehand because you see an inscription on a grave and you don't realize which direction your research is going to take yep. you. Um, so I learned that the authorities decided to focus all of their attentions on the working classes in order to create this healthier population. Mm. Um, and this was something that was totally not on my historical radar at right. all. And actually, that that was, I suppose, a moment of dystopia in mm. in a system that was trying to create a utopia, as is so often the case. Um, That's a great way to see it. I guess. And um, I think that 
the the role of the woman in all of this mm -hmm. was so championed mm -hmm. maybe for the wrong reasons maybe for the right reasons but it, it was it was a moment to shine i think for mm. for for women like mary monk yeah but perhaps a moment of great pressure for the mothers themselves mm -hmm. um because the the message was maybe confused or, or unclear or unrealistic right. for them yeah absolutely i like this idea of they were trying Certainly, we get that. I maybe not articulated that way mm -hmm. brilliantly now by you. Um, that they were trying to create a utopia. There was a certain behavior you have to mm -hmm. um, aim towards. Mm -hmm. um, that was the moral one to achieve. And if you had that achievement, then you would be healthy and you mm -hmm. would be successful. Mm -hmm. And we see that a lot in the in the report by Robert Rollinson, when where aside from looking at statistics about health um about the landscape of, of the town they actually look into the moral of um, how people were behaving they advise very strongly on how they should be behaving um from a distance from the distance of mm -hmm. a superintendent um, mm -hmm. as he was as well quite interesting that she achieved that in her career because um, mm -hmm. she seemed very strongly to be a a male um occupation mm -hmm. definitely mm -hmm. all right um this is a question that i'm asking everybody yes and it's slightly funky so go cool. go with me go for it what would your gravestone say oh <laughs> oh gosh no one wants to think about that do they what would my gravestone say uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh maybe just that ha 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 <laughs> i i'm not sure to be honest with you All right. Yeah. We'll take it at, at that. Okay. <laughs> thank you, Amy. Thank you very much. We wanted to say hi and thank you to all of our listeners out there for being so supportive of this project. Please subscribe, rate and review so other listeners like you can find us. You can follow us on Twitter at We Are on the Hill. Thank you, Amy, for your interesting research, delicate and evocative creative response and for taking the time to chat with us about your experience with Mary Monk. On the Hill is written, recorded and produced in Falmouth. This episode was written by Amy Lewell and me. Research about Mary Monk and the history of childcare, maternity and midwifery by Amy Lewell. You can find Amy's detailed research on our website with information about all the referred material. Research about the town of Falmouth and Falmouth Cemetery by me. Fragment from Sir Robert Rawlinson's report of 1854 from Mary's obituary, and from the Falmouth Burial Ground Regulations, read by Alex Horn. Creative piece by Amy Lilwell. This episode was edited by me. Our theme song is Precious Things by We Are Muffy. Visit our website if you would like to find out more about the research, the season's writers, and our project at wearonthehill.com. We would like to thank Tony Casey, whose initial research into the Falmouth Cemetery has illuminated many of the stories we will look at this season. We also want to thank the Pormos Library History Center for guiding us to resources about Mary Monk. We also want to thank the Falmouth History Archive at the Poly for guiding us to the resources we used across this season to learn about the Falmouth Cemetery and the people buried there. Thanks for listening to the second episode of On the Hill. Join us again in a couple of weeks for our next episode. I am Xerezada Garcia Rangel, and this is On the Hill.